Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Chilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with Iranian food writer and photographer, Sigara Satari, whose debut book, Pomegranates and Artichokes, is the story of two food cultures that share so much, but which are worlds apart. More and more women are refusing um, to wear the mandatory hijab and they're just walking out, not wearing it, and you have no idea the amount of courage that this takes. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. Sagara was born in Tehran and moved to Rome in 2007 to study at the Fine Art Academy. But by 2009, protests against the new regime in Iran had broken out in all major cities and led to what has become known as the Green Revolution or the Persian Spring. Suddenly, Sagara found herself having to make a new home in Italy. I asked her about her dedication in the book to those who dare to live a life, to those who dare to move, braving the seas and the mountains, the men and their borders. The book is dedicated to the immigrants of the world, um, everywhere and anywhere in any direction. And um, people, I believe, have had obstacles on their way uh, into free movement, to be able to move freely. And um, it feels like it's getting harder and harder as we go on, um, even though we've tried to make it easier. Uh, and it and it's about that. It's it's about those obstacles. Uh, some of the obstacles for moving uh, for people, of course, it's the nature, and um, especially for the immigrant these days, it is that like you know we have the whole situation of the Mediterranean Sea or moving by foot through the mountains, and of course it's the bureaucracy and the legislations and the um, laws made by men that make that even more difficult and make people illegal, whereas pe- people cannot be illegal. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, people are people uh, wherever they go, whereas, you know, it's it's the men that make some people um, illegal in some places. Yeah. I mean, you were one of the lucky ones. You were allowed a passport. You were given permission to leave. You came to Rome as a student when you were 22. A lot of people think that um, for us, um, in this case, me as an Iranian or a lot of uh, similar places in our part of the world, is that we are not allowed to get out. I would like to tell you that this is not like this. We are very much allowed to go out. We are not allowed to enter. So, um, of course, you've, you have a political case in Iran, which, you know, that could happen to a lot of people these days or even before these days. Uh, you are, you have the permission to get a passport and you can go wherever you want. It's just that you need a permission. You need a visa to get to those places. Um, so when I say I'm lucky is that I got the permission from the other side, not from inside. Nobody holds you and you want to go, go. And we'll go into your first food moment actually fairly soon. I normally do this much later, but actually it's a very beautiful painting (laughs) of a moment where you are sitting in Trastavere, uh, which if you've been to Rome, you will have been to Trastavere and you will have had very much the same experience looking at people having a wonderful time, just sitting out and enjoying that beautiful Roman kind of world. Tell us what was going on for you that hot summer in the earliest years of living in Rome with your friend Amir? Um, so the summer of um, 2009, it was a very particular moment because it was um, 
you know, just after the green movement in Iran had started, there was an uprising. Uh, initially, it was against uh, an election fraud that had happened those days and people came to the street. It was a it was the beginning of a revolution and we were all pretty much involved in that. But um, we were far from Iran, of course. And um, a lot of my friends actually told me that it was much harder for people who were not living it inside Iran, just that as I think it has been, I mean, I don't dare to say it has been harder for us outside Iran than for the people in Iran who has been living the revolution this time around, the, the woman life revolution in Iran. Um, but the fact that we are glued to a screen or back then it was the computer this time around, it has always been the f- cell phone. And feeling helpless and useless and watching it all just happen inside Iran, it was very, very hard on us. And I would say perhaps this time around, maybe we were a little bit more um, prepared. It was very, very hard all the same, a lot harder than the last time. Uh, But... I personally remember completely breaking down in 2009. And I remember that we wouldn't go to bed anytime before 4 or 5 a.m. And it it was a very strange life. And this dear friend of mine, Amir, he was staying with me for a couple of weeks. Um, and we would do this, you know, together. And back then it, it was a, it was perhaps the last year that all of the, the only place that was open in, in the middle of August was, um, Trastevere and we would go and have a drink there and, um, we would drink a lot. We would drink a lot during that summer. Um, and it was very bizarre to watch people to, you know, just just drink and have fun, and so we w- we would try and you know drown our sorrows in some alcohol, and and we cooked, we cooked, and and we cooked this beautiful dish that is called Mirza Rasemi. It's charred aubergines with um, eggs and tomatoes. It's a dish from Gilan, uh, north of Iran, and the coast of the Caspian Sea, and it's it's very much well known and loved uh, all over Iran, I should say. And um, you get the best result if you char the eggplants, ideally on, you know, fire, but if you don't have it, just on gas hot. And we would do this. We would do this in, you know, in the hot, hot, hot Roman summer with no air conditioner. Um, And he taught me this specific method where where he cooks the eggs separately, whereas a lot of people just break the eggs into the cream of aubergines and tomatoes. And this was one of the reasons I really didn't like this dish before he taught me to make it this way. Um, And that's that's a very, very sweet memory. And for me, it's forever connected to that specific moment in 2009. I found it really extraordinary when I read that. You know, it says so much for me about what food is all about. It's about that juxtaposition of something that you feel absolutely, I was going to say dejected, but it's not. It's There is no word to describe how you must have been feeling at that time. Absolutely uh, alone in this crowd, watching and understanding what's happening to your own country with absolutely nothing that you could do. And so you cook. And you cook for the smell to remind you of what it is that you've left behind. 
but you have to leave it behind and and thank god you've left it behind it's so complicated isn't it it's so mixed up i mean you know writing these things down kind of gives you a sense of narrative and it gives you a sense of clarity and a and a and a voice to be able to talk to the millions of other people who have felt exactly that moment at that time i can't imagine that you felt so clear about what it was. I can tell you that at that moment, I really had no idea what was going on. So I moved to Rome in 2007. And it took me something like maybe three, four, five years. So we're talking about um, sometime in early 2010 or 11. I had not even realized that what I had done was called immigration. And what I had become was an immigrant. So I was very confused uh, in 2009. And then these things unfolded and um, I, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, I had never imagined not being able to go back to Iran. And it wasn't the case for me, but I had to postpone a trip, which would have been my first trip back to Iran after two years. And... Um, I, I hadn't I hadn't realized that sense of immigration. I definitely didn't consider myself an exile. Um, even up to like recent months, it's only now that I've started to to think that oh my god, I probably can't go back to Iran until things don't change. And um, am I an exile? Um, so I think there was a lot of confusion. I definitely couldn't put my feelings into words back then. Um, it, okay. it took a lot of time. It took, honestly, a lot of therapy to get through that. Um, yeah, totally lost in that crowd interest, Avery. Uh, extraordinary. Um, but what you try to do in this book is you look for the moments in Iranian food culture and Italian food culture that meet. And that's a very sweet thing you know you have this extraordinary sort of pull and push between your your own home and this feeling of exile when you didn't choose to be so but you look for the moments that actually do combine and and have in common Uh, and that is what the book is about it's in three parts one is about the Iranian food culture one is the in-betweeny food culture and the other is the Italian food culture which is your new home and the narrative of the book is almost from Iran to your home now in Rome you talk about dreaming in the predominant language everybody always says that you know when you really kind of understand the 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 place you are dreaming in that language but but you say more than that you began to cook in it um tell me about that moment and how long did it take for you to kind of become italian through the cooking at least i think it happened so seamlessly that i didn't even realize the exact moment it was very um easy for me. I remember that in the first couple of years I had, especially in the first year, I had a friend who would cook some Italian dishes for us and who would introduce us to things. But as time went by, we made more friends and we traveled more. So that happened more and more often. And, um, you know, um, Italian food is a lot easier than Iranian food. Uh, and you can make it even if you're on your own. And I was always very um, excited, especially when, you know, roommates, they have these things that they called, uh, you know, vasetti. They're sort of jars that their grandmothers or their aunts make and they have ready food in it and they're very exciting. Um, so I would always ask questions. OK, so what is this? How do, they, how do you make this? Um, but I never I, I can't pinpoint point a specific moment that when that happened. Well, you 
write about how you, you know, just immediately went down to the markets to try and assimilate, to try and get as many recipes and as many ingredients as you possibly could from the Roman markets. You know, the, it's interesting, isn't it, about assimilation? Because actually what you want to do is actually hide. You want to blend in with the crowd so much that people don't really see you. Did it feel like that or did you just want to eat up everything Italian? The first thing that happened, and I think it was very funny, is that I went to the supermarket, not the markets, and I would buy every junk food possible that, you know, things that I wouldn't recognize. It was funny. It was unhealthy, but very, very funny. Also, because I was 22, I had been living with my parents before that, and it was the first time ever I was on my own. So I had like no idea what I was doing. (laughs) Meaning that you couldn't cook. No, I couldn't. I had never cooked back in Iran. Um, but strangely enough, the first time I tried, I could cook. So, uh, and I remember I cooked an Iranian dish. It's actually in the book. I think I even mentioned this. It's the Lubiopolis, the pilaf with, um, um, green beans mm-hmm. and lamb. Mm-hmm. And I, I cooked it for the first time for, you know, after a month we were in Rome. And, and that's the thing. Whenever I wanted to cook Iranian, I would friend, uh, invite friends over because you can't cook this type of food for just one person. Yeah. And after that, it started, it took me a long time to go to the market, like to understand the concept of market, because I came from this big city where my parents did the shopping and cooking. And I, to be honest, I wasn't familiar with the concept of markets. Not that they didn't exist in Iran. It's just that I hadn't been to, you know, to do the shopping. And so there was this, you know, push and pull between, yes, I can do this. Let me experience with the uh, experiment with this. And then no, not at all. I'm going to do just Iranian food. Um, and it has always been like this. And, and, you know, even now. Well, particularly when you're you're inviting people over, um, your second food moment is Noru's. And of course, there are so many people from all over the world in uh, Rome uh, sharing your experience to some extent. And you talk about Helen, who is from Aleppo. And uh, these are yes. the two bread salads from the Levant. Tell us why you chose this food moment. Well, um, the Nauru's food um, in Iran is a very specific dish. It's always a, a herby pilaf with fish that I was making for that dinner. And um, I met Helen through another Iranian friend, and she's Kurdish, so they celebrate Nauru's too in Syria. And she came and she made one of these salads, which is the fatta, which is, uh, you know, the pita with uh, garlicky yogurt. It's so, so delicious. Tahini, chickpeas and uh, pine nuts. Um, and I fell in love with this dish. And, um, you know, I would I would hang out with Helen quite a lot. And she was doing back in the day, she was doing a Ph.D. in archaeology. And she would talk about Syria and what happened to Syria because she, when the war started, she had to escape Aleppo and uh, she and her family, they can't go back. But what was really striking to me is that despite the fact that she got a PhD degree from La Sapienza, the best university, um, the biggest university of Rome, possibly one of the best universities of Europe, she could not get a postdoc position or a job in Europe because they wouldn't give like no company or university would risk um, giving her the job because she's a Syrian passport holder. So despite that, she had to go back. She couldn't go. And, and you know, she kind of felt lost. And this was really tragic because she can't go back to Syria. Here, despite her qualifications, she can't get a job after, you know, a whole PhD. And she went to the uh, south of Turkey, to the 
actually it's the region that now the earthquake happened. Um, and, and she found a job there. And that, that's a place where a lot of Assyrians um, are living now in the south of Turkey. Uh, and I found that story really heartbreaking because she, she spoke of this feeling of homelessness, which is, you know, punishes the people for um, a problem that um, a state has. And then, of course, you know, the people of the states would not have that problem, just as the people of the regime of Iran have been wandering in the US and the whole Europe quite easily. Their children have been studying there. The same with the Syrian regime. But ordinary people, they suffer from the consequences of these laws. Yeah, absolutely terrible. And you said there are no, no Syrian embassies anywhere in Europe. Quite yes, which is shocking. Nowhere to go, no one to talk to. But at least, yeah, and it sounds trite to say at least that they can eat, you know, with you and at least break bread with you. But it is important, isn't it? There is some connection that's available through these rituals that remind people of home, even uh, if you come from different countries. Um, the third food moment is is actually an Italian uh, dish, the guinea hen with pomegranate. Yet when I read it, I was still lusting after the Iranian chicken dish. And I just thought I was reading the same one. But this is the Farona. Which, tell me why uh, you chose this one. It's, it's a very, very interesting dish. This is one of the um, first um, possibly dishes that gave me the inspiration for the book because a very good friend of mine, uh, Valentina, she talked um, about it. Uh, they're from Le Marque region and they live in the countryside. And she would tell me about that. Uh, I think we were talking about some Iranian dish with pomegranates. And then she said that, you know, my mom makes this um, guinea hen uh, with pomegranate because we have a little pomegranate tree and we always have a lot of um, poultry there in the countryside. And she squeezes some uh, pomegranate juice and some um, aromatic herbs. And then she puts fresh pomegranate seeds on top of it. And I thought... Oh my God, I think we make this dish in Iran. Um, mm-hmm. and we do. There is another dish in the book, which is called Nardun, um, mm-hmm. which is a chicken with pomegranate. And the only thing that changes between these recipes, this is really funny, um, is the aromatics. In the Iranian one, we use onions. The other one uses, uh, bay leaves and, um, mm-hmm. rosemary and things like that. And I thought, oh, well, this is amazing because in similar conditions and climate where you have, when you have available similar ingredients, people come up with similar solutions, which is definitely true for this. But then towards the ending um, of the editing of the book, I came upon um, this essay, which is called Romania and Other Arabic uh, Words in um, Italian. It's in this gorgeous book called uh, Medieval Arab Cookery, which is a um, sort of a source book for anyone researching um, Arab and Persianate cuisine of the old times. And basically, well, it's a very, very long essay, but to say it very, very briefly, um, it talks about a book in the, I believe, 1800s in Italian, which talks about another manuscript of the 14 or 1500s. And they talk about this chicken, uh, this Romania chicken, and they can't decide, they can't decipher whether um, it's uh, a Western recipe that has gone to, to the East, because in Arabic, in Turkish, and even in Persian, one of the words for Western is Rumi or Roman or something like that, because it's mm-hmm. as in Roman. So is it called this way because it was... Uh, a Western recipe, a Western chicken that has traveled there, and that's why they, they've given this Arabic name to it. Or 
Is it an Eastern recipe that has traveled to West because the word for pomegranate in Arabic is actually Roman? So it's the Roman chickens. And, you know, they don't really know that. And I was completely blown away. Well, I did a, a, a podcast episode this time last year, actually, at the British Library Food Season with Sam and Sam Clark from Morrow. And the author or the woman who was putting together this 14th, 15th century cookbook that had been oh, yes. found. And it is this story of this extraordinary young man who travelled from Spain, actually, Andalusia, through, uh, was kicked out like all the Arabs and the Jews in, I think it was 1492, wasn't it? Somewhere around there. Um, and of course, then went down to the Levant and uh, ended up in Syria. And then I think that manuscript was later found in Egypt. Um, and with it, all these extraordinary recipes, very, very similar to the ones you're talking about. So these are recipes that travel. And and you do talk about Claudia Roden quite a lot. I'm, I'm actually having lunch with her next on Tuesday. Oh, lucky you. And I'm going to take her your fourth food moment, which is the orange scented rice cake. Thank you. Her famous almond and orange cake from her book of Middle Eastern food. The journey of that cake is what has inspired this one. Tell me about that and why you chose it for your final food moment. That cake is actually a rice pudding that you put a couple of eggs in it and you bake it. Okay. And all of these cultures has one or more form of a rice pudding, usually cooked in milk, but necessarily, not necessarily. And they only usually change in the aromatic that they use. So, uh, for example, we use, uh, in Iran, we use cardamom and, and rose water, or we have another version that exists in the book that we use, um, a lot of saffron in it. It has no milk. It is basically the same thing that they have in Turkey. And then it travels where, well, in, in India, they only use rose water in it. And then it travels, goes to the Levant, they use uh, rose water and orange blossom. And then the, the more it travels and it goes to towards Spain and Italy, it becomes very citrusy. So it's just lemons, lemons, lemons and orange. And they have similar recipes, especially in the regions of Campania and Sicily in Italy. But curiously enough, I've also had this in Bologna, which, um, I mean, maybe it's not from that region, but, you know, I, I couldn't pinpoint the point, uh, the, this recipe, where, where it actually is from. But I love this idea that it's the, sa- it's the same rice pudding, but it, the aromatics are different. There's a little bit of a liqueur, which is, you know, you wouldn't use it in, in um, Muslim countries, I would say it's not as common. Um, and then you bake it, and it's more... It just like Claudia Roda's amazing almonds and um, orange recipe, which I wait every winter to get the good oranges. And you know, I always bake that cake like everyone else. Um, it's more of a pudding than a cake. It, it's very soft and it gets that texture. And what, well, you know, like everyone else, I'm in awe of Claudia Roden, of course. And what I particularly love is that perhaps it was actually in your podcast that she said that how the movement for people, it was easier about like, let's say, 70, 80 years ago. And then things started getting harder. She talks about the journey of her family. Some of her family, they had been from, from Spain and they had moved to Aleppo. And then they would, some, some of them from Egypt and they would come and go. I think a grandmother of hers was uh, from Istanbul. And it was this thing that amazed me. It was a free movement along a vast geographical era that seemed from an era where things 
could happen like this. Whereas now, oh my God, you can't put your foot behind the fence. The fence is something I talk a lot about in the book uh, because I really believe it exists uh, for those of us, you know, in our part of the world to, to be able to step behind, you need, you need something that breaks this for you. And, 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 you know, we, we think when, when we imagine a world with, um, a possibility of easier movement, we're imagining something new. Whereas we, we can even remember like people who are, uh, people like Claudia Roden, they actually remember it of from the time that it was easier. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Let's end by talking a little bit about what's happening right now in Iran. Um, yes. Obviously, with social media, you can be politically active. What's the vision that you have of, of your own country? Is there a place for women in the future of Iran? I think women are now are in the center and the presence of Iran. I am in awe and I, in, in awe of the courage and... Um, you know, beauty of the women of Iran who are fighting with everything they've got, despite um, unbelievable difficulty, uh, despite what what we've been through um, since September. Um, and now there is this um, civil disobedience that is going on. And people tend to forget about what's going on in Iran if it's not horribly violent and you don't get that sort of image which i you know i understand it's it's not it's not sustainable to to keep that sort of you know you, you can't keep watching it i can't keep watching it um but what's what's been going on lately is that more and more and more and more women are refusing um to wear the mandatory hijab and they're just walking out not wearing it and you have no idea the amount of courage that this takes i can't imagine it I can't imagine it. And um, the activists inside Iran are still working. This is nowhere near uh, over. It will go on. It's just a moment that uh, at the moment there aren't any protests like there used to be in Iran. But there are strikes going on. A lot of the workers in, in important um, workplaces, they are on strike. We need people to remember Iran and we need people to keep talking about Iran, because I think that's really important. Would any of those women who are on the front line of this revolution, who might read your book, what, what's the message for them? I, I wonder what they would feel about somebody like you who left as a student and who literally can't go back, and the freedom that you have to be able to effortlessly move between these two wonderful food cultures to have the freedom to feel and to cry in the streets but actually know that you can get up in the morning and do whatever you want i honestly don't know how to answer this because i i know that the book can't be distributed inside iran because of the sanctions the first thing that i thought was that well we are not different we're not that different i don't feel that there is i don't want there to be that sort of difference between me and the women in Iran, I, because if the, if I feel that separation, it means it's it's over for me. I, I'm I, and I don't think it can happen. Uh, I don't feel that disconnected. Are are you are you flying the flag for liberated women of Iran? Are you showing Iran itself what its own women 
can look like if they're allowed to to show their intelligence and be free to do to speak of beautiful things like this incredible food culture to celebrate their country well i hope so i i really hope so i think um i mean somehow i wouldn't permit myself to say that because i think the women of iran are doing such an amazing job that they don't need someone like me to um to raise a flag for them and some uh, sometimes i mean I, I, you know, Iranian people in general, that we love beautiful things. We're a fan of all things beautiful, food, poetry, architecture, um, fashion. And I, I think I, I just, I only hope to have been able to add a small little mosaic to that huge, huge puzzle. But I am no one really to be able to um, raise a flag to anyone. I think the women of Iran are doing an amazing job for themselves. And I'm just happy and proud to be able to raise their voice a little bit. Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at Smith, and on Substack where you'll find a little extra bites from Sagara, including a really wonderful story of her travelling orange rice cake with a special interview with Claudia Roden. Just search for Jilly Smith on Substack and I'll see you next week.